You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Shelter belts are made using selectively chosen and placed plant species to provide a wide range of benefits for humans and nature especially in an agricultural setting, although the same principles can be applied to the home garden. In this episode, we're lucky enough to have on an entomologist and ecologist that's done his PhD thesis on shelterbelts, Dr Ian Smith. G'day Ian, welcome to the show mate. It's great to be here. Can you tell me a little bit about the sort of work that you perform? So at the moment, I work for a local council as as a rural environment officer. So basically it's meeting up with landowners and very helping them out with various uh, land grants, but also just that talking to them, explaining, explaining land management and that just general extension work is my main, main role at the moment. So what do you mean by extension work? So extension is the facilitation of information from one person to another. So with land management, it's such a varied topic that even someone who can be brilliant in one area of land management, they may be missing areas of others, other topics. And so it's as an extension worker, it's to help where you can, basically, to jump in, say, have you considered this? Huh. I noticed you're doing this. Have you thought about other ways of doing it? So, yeah, it's, it's, it's really just about getting that conversation going. So can you tell us a little bit about the sort of conditions in the area that you work with in Victoria? Yeah, so I work in the uh, Western Bowsalt Plains type area. So this is, it tends to be quite tricky to work with because you have a lot of floating rocks. Often you get these steep gullies and the soil is very heavy clay. So I'm I'm sure you're familiar. Planting in clay Mm -hmm. is not always the easiest because yeah, it's clay. It can be very hard for plants to get their roots down into. And it's also quite tricky quite it quite takes a lot of effort for plants to be able to pull moisture out of it so and so clay can easily go from incredibly dry and hard to completely waterlogged in in quite short periods of time and that's that's just a really challenging environment for most plants and and agriculture as well so you know we got this environment you know trying to put equipment through if it's too wet you're bogging your equipment if it's too dry you can hit a rock and break various equipment by uh, tra- dragging metal through it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I guess well, this episode's about shelter belts. So yep. I'd like to get to that question just in a second, but can you tell me a little bit about the sort of work that you're doing to help establish plants within that clay? Like are you breaking it before you plant or what are you doing? Yeah, so when you're planting plants and preparing soil, it comes down to how much time and budget you want to invest. <laughs> in theory, you don't have to invest a lot. You could just drill a hole, so long as you're willing to maintain the plant and make sure that it's protected and getting watered. And the the only thing about planting direct into clay is not to make sure that the edges of the hole that you dug aren't smooth. Otherwise, you can get a actually uh, root binding. So you want a bit of a rough rough edge of a hole. But if you want, if you're doing a larger area. You can look at uh, you know using heavy equipment and dragging rip lines, and so some like sort of the best the, the best best as if you what they do in forestry is they do a deep rip line and then they would spray glyphosate or if you don't want to use chemicals you could use a thick layer of mulch as well and then you would at least a meter away around that and then you would plant into that so trying to break that soil up so water can drain in although when you do break up soil you have to be careful that what loves broken up soil is also weeds. So you need to maintain your weed control once you've disturbed the soil. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's an issue of investment, investment, like how much you're willing to invest. But I guess we're going to talk about shelter belts now. And some people are willing to invest a lot of money into a shelter belt. So can you tell me a little bit about what a shelter belt is? Yeah, so a shelter belt is simply a row of trees that is planted for some sort of utilitarian purpose. That is, it's either to reduce wind speed, so to protect crops or to protect livestock, or it could just be to create a barrier to a problem area like a neighbour who's not controlling their weeds, 
or it's and in short, it's to provide shelter, hence shelter belts. Um, <laughs> but uh, they've also got a couple of other names. It, it's I, I, I've really had a tr- hard time trying to use a universal phrase to describe them because it seems really erratic which regions use what names. So some will call them shelter belts, some will call them windbreaks, some yeah you parts of overseas you'll, you'll get hedgerows as a term timber belts occasionally if they're used for timber as well so yeah it's it it's any any row of tree along an edge of a property or or through a property even to provide a service of some type right so what sort of services are we getting from a shelter belt uh, so the most common and often the only reason why they're planted is wind reduction and they're very really good at doing that but I personally, I've actually done a PhD on shelter belts, and I really like to explore other other bonuses and benefits, economic benefits that you get from establishing shelter belts. And they're often not as well explored or considered when they're putting put in, and 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 that's really to the landowner's detriment because there's a whole range of other services that, with just some small tweaks, that you can actually get you know, reasonably significant uh, economic benefits out of establishing these trees. Right. So how does a shelter belt made from living plants and sort of trees and of various sizes differ from a man-made fence or a wall? Yeah. So the main benefit of planting trees over a physical barrier is cost. You know, a a handful of seed costs basically nothing. <laughs> um, so long as you're willing for it to wait to establish, it it's quite quite affordable you will of course you, in many areas you have to fence them off from livestock or uh, pest animals <laughs> but a man-made structure also they're very they don't they generally don't last long because the wind always blows and the soil always gets wet so eventually these structures they uh you know like a fence they just if you know even a suburban backyard fence it, you know every 10 years 20 years you've got to replace it so whereas a tree they could be in there for hundreds of years if uh, so, and uh, they come back if there's a disturbance. Um, you know, a lot of native species. If there's a bushfire comes through, a, a structure will burn down. It's not coming back, but uh, a lot of those trees will um, come back and no time at all. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I guess the you know even if that particular tree doesn't bounce back, they're also dropping seeds. So there's a seed bank there. Yeah, a lot of traditional. Early farms, they often use these thin rows of cypress trees, and they're really good at blocking the wind in a very small amount of space, which is why they use them. But a lot of farmers tend to move away from that these days, and that's one of the reasons is cypress trees are very sensitive to disturbance. So even like a light fire, once once they burn, they're gone. Mm. And then what, or uh, they're also prone to something called Cypress canker, which is like a fungal disease, and once they get infected, they just die, and it's quite hard to establish more cypress trees in an area because that pathogen is still around. And the problem with that, when you lose, let's say, one or two trees from a shelter belt that's that dense and that narrow, is you've gone from having a shelter belt to having a wind funnel. So you're now actually forcing the wind through this narrow gap in a shelter belt. And you get circumstances like if you've got crops on the other side of that and you've got a hole in the shelter belt, you actually, you know, it'd be like pointing a hairdryer at one point of the, on one point of a plant. You just, you get this uh, wind scouring effect. And, and also more slightly more tragically, like livestock may shelter in that open area and where they think they're going to be sheltered because they're in the trees, but they're actually sitting in the worst possible part of the paddock and they're actually getting, um, you know, you know, at, at worst hypothermia and, at at best reduced productivity. So yeah, when that, so when you a lot most farmers these days they tend to go for more sort of wider and native or indigenous species and that's one of the benefits is that if a gap does appear they you often just get natural regeneration and you don't have to worry about it or and also if it's wider you tend not you tend not to have to worry about gaps forming because you've got multiple trees in a row. So if one disappears it doesn't matter if you've got one or two other trees to take its place Mm. so it's obviously going to be difficult for people in urban and suburban areas to make a dent with a shelter belt on a small patch of land so obviously this is more of an agricultural thing so why are farmers putting them in and spending that money to put them in what return on investment are they getting yes so it's it's not 
it's actually it's not it's actually not small potatoes. <laughs> it's so when you it's actually can be quite significantly economical to put in a shelter belt. What actually happens is when you re- a typical shelter belt can sort of reduce wind speed by say at a minimum 20%, but often up to 50, 60 or more more percent of the wind speed. And what that does is you reduce that mechanical wind damage to, if it was a crop, you reduce that wind crop. So instantly, depending on what the wind, you imagine you had a really windy season. If that crop was exposed, well, you could lose like large percentages of your crop. Whereas if it's sheltered, suddenly you've got, you know, your damage is really reduced. And conversely, if you're doing an if you do livestock farming and grazing, the you, if during lambing season is is the most notable because a lamb that's exposed and if it was born during a cold windy day, you actually get really high mortality rates. And you can you can if just by having it just somewhere sheltered for a sheep to lamb, you can drop that. I, I can't remember the actual figure, but it, it's it's really significant the amount of lambs that you would lose. Conversely, if if you're a grazier, a for example a, a dairy cow that is in a sheltered paddock, I forgot the exact figure, but it's something like tw- you can get twenty percent more productivity out of a cow that is in a comfortable sheltered environment, and in if it's on a, sh- a sheep farm, you can get a dr- drastic reduction in lambing mortality because their lamb lambs when they're first born are very vulnerable to cold stress because they're they're wet they haven't been fed so they're not producing much heat so so if you can when they're in that vulnerable period if you can get them born in in a paddock that's sheltered by these shelter belts yeah you know if if it's you know even yeah for every every sheep that survives that's money in your back pocket yeah exactly and you know in this day and age farmers are talking more and more about ipm Mm -hmm. if our listeners haven't heard of that We've done several episodes where we've mentioned it. Integrated pest management. So we're talking about the benefits of a shelter belt are also going to include a higher biodiversity rate, which is going to also put money in their back pocket. Yeah. So when people think biodiversity, the first thing they go to is say endangered birds or endangered mammals. And yeah, they're great. Every no, no, I've never met anyone who wants less biodiversity in that, but there's more to it than that. So what people don't think about is insect biodiversity so if you think of just a a paddock of just a single crop type so say just a field of canola there's not much resource there for anything except herbivore insects so your aphids your mealybugs caterpillars all the pest species and it takes a long time for beneficial insects to move in uh, because at the end of the season that crop is is harvested there's no resources left, most insects die off, and then the process repeats itself. But when you have these patches of vegetation, like in a shelter belt, you actually have these little reservoirs where beneficial insects can harbour for those, those, those periods when the, the crop is being disturbed through harvesting. So this is actually quite measurable. If you, if you put out insect traps every few meters away from a shelter belt you can actually see this gradual increase in pest insects and that is actually from all the beneficial insects that are just hanging out in a in the shelter belt and yeah so they they will they spend most of their time there and then just when the conditions allow they'll actually fly out and you know suddenly there's a boom in aphids they're like oh there's a lot of food resources out there i'll now go fly out into that crop so yeah biodiversity is really important to agriculture and often in ways people don't consider because it's often not visible that there's actually a lot of economic benefit to it that's just not visible to to anyone except those who are really looking for it yeah absolutely agree so we've also got benefits in terms of erosion and sort of soil control can you tell us about how a, a shelter belt would help us with that yeah so the the most notable is wind erosion reduction so that just goes back to the main reason most people plant. You reduce your wind speed. The slower the wind speed, the less wind reduction, uh, the less wind erosion you get, and that that becomes really important when you've got crops that might require sort of total loss of vegetation cover or quite significant loss. 
because when that soil is exposed, if you get a big windstorm event, well, we're, yeah, we've you know you, we've seen it in yeah. the city with <laughs> that you get those big red dust storms coming through. Yep. And if if you were to imagine that every farm had shelter belts, well, that that level of dust storm, you'd actually see a lot less of it. So imagine how many tons and tons of soil, fertile topsoil, was lost, and how much could have been prevented just just by having a few trees scattered around. <laughs> but the other parts that people don't think about is where trees get their nutrients from is from deep within the subsoil. And they get their nutrients from there. They bring it up into their leaves. They utilize the leaves for their growth. Then eventually the leaf dies and it drops down to the ground. That's where it decomposes and it becomes organic matter in the soil. So it actually starts building up the soil again. So one way to think of about trees on farms or even in gardens, well, is they actually act as like mulch, mulch pumps or fer- fertility pumps. They're bringing out nutrients deep from the subsoil where no other plant or crop will be able to reach them and then brings it to the surface. And uh, yeah, it, 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 um, as the wind blows, it scatters it to either the crop or into the garden and that breaks down, and which encourages small microbes in the soil, encourages you know worms and all sorts of macroinvertebrates in the soil to start breaking that down and it just gets the whole ecosystem going and if you just didn't have trees in the landscape you just lose so much of that process and then on top of that once you get the organic matter uh, organic matter in the soil that you actually reduce water erosion because instead of water just flowing through in an inorganic soil which greatly increases water erosion the organic matter in the soil actually absorbs water so rather than the the water just flowing through the landscape and causing sort of gully erosion it actually it takes it soaks into the soil and it sits there to be later accessed by plants yeah that's that's just having trees on your farm just adds so much to so so much to the soil health just because it prevents wind erosion and it allows water absorption instead of water long slope erosion from water flowing across the landscape so it's much more than just simply the roots holding together the soil beneath those trees, which is what maybe you might think when you first think of erosion control. Yeah, and it's it's this whole ecology is just such a complicated system of landscape. Like you know, it, it's easy to look at just one aspect of say, you know, I want pollination, so I'll get bees. And what do bees like? Flowers. It's, but then you've got to think about. Everything else, well, a bee is the only thing that that pollinate is a flower is the only thing that pollinators need, and so yeah, it just it becomes this complicated net, (laughs) Um, and yeah, and and that's where it becomes really important to talk to everyone you know when you're planning these landscapes, and I'm 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 sure everyone you speak to who's involved in horticulture, like everyone's got their own ideas, and you you never speak to one person go, oh yeah, I know all of this because. In fact, they're the worst ones. I have actually worked with people who said, oh, yeah, I know everything, and they know nothing. They're the ones who know the least. Because <laughs> the more you know, the less you know. Yeah, exactly. You just got to come into these things with an open mindset and just say, what else do I know? Because it's, ecology is such a complicated science because you're just dealing with so many species and so many interactions. It's, you, know, you, can, spend, you can spend years studying it, and people do. <laughs> Some people do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So we've also got above ground benefits too. So can you tell us about microclimate effects? Yeah. So when uh, a shelter belt reduces wind speed, it does prevent that mechanical wind damage that I was talking about. But it also, when you reduce that wind speed, you actually can cause a change in the microclimate. So that's things like humidity levels. So an open area of landscape, if the wind blows across it, it causes evaporation from plants very quickly and from soil very quickly. Same process of hanging clothes on your clothesline. If you just if you have your clothes on the clothesline on a nice sunny windy day, it'll dry really quickly. Whereas if you just have it all dumped in a basket, it'll take forever to dry. And that's that's basically the same process. So if you shelter if you shelter a paddock or a garden from direct wind from having these large established trees, the wind slows down. It prevents this rapid erosion of water, and it allows the water, the moisture in the area, to persist, and that makes it more accessible to plants. And also, when you've got these lower wind speeds and higher moisture, that 
encourages other aspects of uh, diversity to develop. So you get all these beneficial micro wasps. They like humidity and low wind speed. Beneficial fungus breaking down leaf matter in the garden and in the soil. They also like that sort of microclimate. And also, if particularly if you're in uh, hotter climates, if you you know if you're hitting if you're hitting an exposed soil and it's just being hit by the sun all day, it's going to dry out a lot faster than an area pasture that gets shade during say the hottest part of the day. So you know if you've got a shelter belt that runs along the west when the shade shelters that during the hottest part of the day, well, you're preserving the moisture a little bit there. So you can actually plan out the direction you want the shelter belt to to change what what benefits you want to achieve. Yeah, right. So there's a lot of science behind it, and we're not going to be able to get to all of it today. And I'm I'd sure you have try. a lot more to say. <laughs> <laughs> and also a lot of what you would have to say would have a lot to, like to do with where you're situated, obviously. Yeah, I mean, it's... I mean, I, I originally did my research in the Yarra Valley, so that tends to be a lot more fertile than the western side of Melbourne, but the principles tend to be the same. The only real areas where shelter belts act a little bit differently, the principles can... Actually, the principles are the same everywhere, but if you're in very arid areas, you need to be a little bit more careful because they can... You need to look at how much competition you want for water. So when water becomes very scarce, you want to look at what tree species and how much water they're using. The theory is that they you will lose productivity close to the shelter belts, but when you're reducing that wind speed and you're getting all the other benefits I mentioned, you do also get a benefit about two and a half times the height of the shelter belt away from the shelter belt. So in theory, it should it should balance out, but it really depends on circumstance. And you've, there's, yeah, there's also the odd horror stories where people have planted the wrong tree in the wrong spot mm-hmm. and have just caused <laughs> a lot of competition with um, cropping. So you need need to need to have a little little bit of planning to uh, in those sort of harsher environments. Right. So we've got the layout design aspect, and then we've got the plant selection aspect. So let's leave plant selection for now. Yep. What sort of design specs are we looking at? Like how how do you spot a good one from a bad one? Yeah, so firstly, any shelter any tree on a farm is probably going to provide some benefits. So even just scattered farm trees will actually reduce wind speed and provide a certain level of of benefit. So if you just don't have the resources to do the best best practice shelter belt, then putting whatever in wherever is probably going to have some benefit <laughs> cool but if if i was to say what the what the best shelter belt is what you want is a mixture of indigenous which is local species of shrubs ground covers and and taller trees and you also you want this probably about well as wide as possible but when you're talking productive land you know people don't want to give up too much productivity land but i'd say at least a couple of meters wide, enough to get sort of about two or three trees wide. So, right. and the reason for that is, you know, sh- trees will grow irregularly. Occasionally, a tree will die. So, if you've just got a single row of trees, well, if one dies, then you get that you get a gap forming, and that can cause uh, issues with wind tunneling effects. Whereas, if you've got enough room to have multiple trees, then it's a lot more resilient to disturbance and. Yeah, and if you have if you have sort of a shrub layer as well, you also protect you you provide extra shelter from gaps between tree trunks. And if if you play it right, you can also if you've got livestock, you can can do crash grazing. So if it's a particularly dry year, you go well, my pasture's down, but I've still got all this say salt bush in the shelter belt. You know, maybe I can utilize that. And mm. yeah, perfectly perfectly acceptable thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, but even yeah, even if you just have a very sparse shelter belt, it'll still provide a reasonable level of wind reduction. So the wider a shelter belt is, it will provide a greater decrease in wind a greater decrease in wind speed. And the taller the shelter belt is, the longer that shelter will that area of slower wind speed will occur for. So the area of greatest wind reduction past a shelter belt is two and a half times the height of a shelter belt. So if you've got a tree that's five meters tall, well, two and a half times, that's 25 meters away. You've got you've got this nice sheltered area. 
Yeah, I hope I got my maths there on the fl- right on the fly, but I'm pretty sure that was right. Um, <laughs> so, but it does that. That's the area of greatest wind reduction, but the the wind reduction does actually continue for quite some time after that, sort of up to more than ten ten times the height, um, or even further. And we're not too concerned about planting trees too close together. Usually in horticulture, we'd say right plant, right place, don't plant things too close together. But in this case, we don't really care if we're losing limbs, you know, they're crossing, you know, this is a all part of the function, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so there are two sort of schools of thought on this. So as you alluded to, if you don't have the resources and you want to make sure you do this as cheaply as possible, then you probably don't want to plant them too close together because they are going to outcompete and you're going to lose some trees. And so you're going to have to have more trees than you need. If the if the cost of the trees is a bit more prohibitive, but you've got the time to sort of invest in looking after individual trees, then yeah, sort of wider spacing, you can cover a greater area for less money. Conversely, trees actually grow better if they're planted close together up until the point where, rule of thumb, once trees' canopies start touching, they start actually competing for resources. So that's sort of when, if you want to grow, get them to grow as fast as possible, as tall as possible, you'd need to start thinning them out at that point. But conversely, if you're quite happy with how they're growing, you can also just let them out-compete each other and just slowly fight each other out so that the stronger species wins. Forming habitat the whole time as they do that. Yeah, so as if a tree dies, it's well actually a dead tree still provides a level of wind reduction because it's still providing a level of wind turbulence which slows the wind speed down. And a dead tree, yeah, provides insect habitat, it provide and which and once the insects moved into dead rotting trees, birds utilize that for a food source and such the circle of life continues. <laughs> yeah, so you know, it's not it's not really a loss. It's just it's just a matter of you know how many trees you can get in there, and and how much you're willing to invest, uh, whether that's time or money. Would you ever plant tube stock, you know, far apart for the maybe ukes aren't always easy to grow by seed, but would you ever throw down some seeds for trees and let them, you know, would that be a cheaper way to do it, or do you not rely on seeds for trees? Y- you could. The issue in sort of agriculture tends to be rabbits, so or kangaroos. Okay or any other grazing animal. <laughs> so seedlings tend to be very prone at that stage. If so, yeah. that would probably work if you can have a really decent rabbit proof fence and you can and you can maintain that fence, make sure nothing's getting in. And yeah, and particularly if the trees are quite hardy hardy for the area. But yeah, they will be prone to insect attack and sorry, more prone to insect attack and uh, rabbit attack if you mm-hmm. can't manage it in that way. Yeah. I can see that being a huge issue. Yeah. So, I mean, if if you're looking sort of smaller hobby blocks, so sort of more of in a horticultural zone, if you're looking just to sort of shelter a um, sort of a, you know, rural retreat or something, then yeah, if you, you'd have the time to, you know, constantly inspect and, you know, I go, oh, there's a lot of slug damage. I better put down some baits or something along those lines, you know. Whereas when you're talking, if it's over a couple of hectares, well, it starts, starts piling up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Totally understand that. So I guess really up until now, we've talked a lot about the agricultural benefits Mm -hmm. and some of those are also going to touch on the environmental benefits, but I'd like to now ask you, can you tell us about some of those environmental benefits that have nothing to do with benefits that are good for human beings? Yeah. So the best thing, the best thing about shelter belts is, so for insects, they provide habitat, but when you're talking sort of larger species like your birds of prey your bird life your mammals they work very good as wildlife corridors so if you were to imagine a say a farm that or a property that's between a vegetated creek and a national park well if they've got shelter belts running across their property and i'm a small possum prone to foxes well suddenly i can actually move from tree to tree with you know minimal exposure to potential predators so and and but even if you're not directly connected so farm trees or even scattered in sort of more urban areas scattered trees birds will still utilize um, scattered trees across a landscape and it helps them move across a landscape so birds will if they're flying cross-country they will prefer to take a route that has 
trees along it where they can stop and shelter if they need be. So that may even be taking a longer route around, say, yeah, finding a following a creek corridor or something. Where so if you have a property with scattered trees or shelter belts, suddenly it provides them an alternative direction that they can fly. Mm. So yeah, you and and also yeah, just it's another food source. So if they're having to travel a long way and their only preferred habitat is two national parks, for instance, that are long distance apart, well, it gives them a pit stop. You know, maybe it doesn't have all their resources, but it gives them a stop, stop to, oh, look, there's a gum tree with some flowers. I can get a bit of nectar to keep me going, keep me going until I get to my actual destination. Yeah, very cool. So there's, what are some of the reasons why someone wouldn't put one of these shelter belts on their property? Yeah, so one of the concerns people have about shelter belts is tends to be competition with crops. I don't think that's a deal breaker. Because you can often, there's usually ways around it. For example, if you have a if you have a track that runs through your property, you can plant trees along that track, and suddenly the root systems aren't competing with crops; they're competing with a road which doesn't need water. So problem solved there. <laughs> yeah. So and yeah, as I said, in really dry areas like sort of mallee type conditions, you can get quite wide areas of um, resource competition. So those areas need a bit of bit more careful planning. And for the most part, yeah, normally there's no insurmountable problems with trees if there is going to be some level of competition. I think the only key issue I've come across that uh, one of the notable competition effects I've seen with, between plants and crops is I was speaking to a vineyard owner and he specifically didn't want trees in a certain area because it reduced wind speed, which is normally a good thing. Uh-huh. But in vineyards, there's a lot of issues with fungus. And if, you're, if you slow the wind down, you actually create these humid conditions, which can actually increase fungus problems within, within the grape bunches themselves. So yeah, yeah, there's a couple of key, key problems where you might need some careful planning. Yeah, it's just about situating your shelter belt where it's not going to cause those problems. And you can always... You know, it doesn't have to be big, tall trees that are going to impact on the surrounds. You know, maybe you can even just do something like a like a, a short shrub layer that just provides nectar for beneficial insects or, and also conversely uh, some habitat for native birds. And so that's that's not going to impact a vineyard wind speed because it's only a short distance. So it's only going to be, you know, if it's only a meter tall, it's going to be it's only going to have a major effect two and two and a half meters away, but it's also going to provide all this extra habitat for beneficial mm. insects. Which there's some really really key beneficial insects that can move into vineyards. Things like uh, green lacewings and um, ladybirds and uh, trichogramma wasps, which can eat the eggs or of major pests like light brown apple moth, which is a leaf leaf roller. If you if you have a short shelter belt or just any sort of shelter belt that has flowering resources in it, you can the nectar resources are really utilized by micro wasps. And what they do is they they'll eat that nectar and they'll use that to produce the females will use that to produce extra eggs, and then they'll lay those eggs inside the eggs of pest insects like the light brown apple moth. And so they instead of the light brown apple moth hatching. <laughs> Out pops another trichogramma micro wasp, and that they hatch out, and then the cycle continues. They go on hunting for more pest insects. So the more the more resources you have in a in a vineyard or any sort of farm, generally the more sort of level of pest control you'll get. So yeah, it, there's always ways ways around it. it. It doesn't have to be tall trees, tall towering trees. It can be can be ground cover. It can be shrub layers. It can be trees it's uh yeah it's just about plant planning planning the vegetation to the property yeah totally and it gets so complicated when we have these multiple life spans of insects you know it's so easy to say oh yeah all i need is aphids to feed the wasps or sorry all i need is the moths as well to feed the aphids well that's uh to feed the wasps but that's not necessarily true you know because they have multiple lifespans where it may just be the juvenile stage of the insect that's doing all the damage to the pests then another lifespan needs pollen or something like that yeah and and this i mean this topic actually it spans from 
you know, the biggest agricultural farms right down to the smallest veggie garden in, in, the, in the city, that if you most beneficial insects at some part of their life cycle will need nectar and pollen. How about mosquitoes? They're a pollinator too. Yeah, so most most flies are pollinators actually. Um, so right, yeah, yeah. We, I mean, we love to talk about our bees in our gardening, <laughs> about pollinators. But if you actually if you just sit in your garden and watch what lands on a flower, you'll notice bees don't actually come that commonly compared to you'll see all these miniature, you know, little flies and then blowflies and then some small beetles and the and ants and. It's just like, well, actually, you know, <laughs> if we just focus on one type of bee, well, we're 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 losing the advantage of all these other ones. So, and I actually do, I actually do recommend doing that as well, even just as just a really fun thing to do, just to sit down and look at insects crawling over flowers. Absolutely, I'll tell you what, like it is a meditation because you feel like it's just so nice to just sit there and listen to the sounds around you and just watch things crawling over flowers. Yeah, and and have a look at different times of day. So if you go in, you know, late spring when you get a, starting to get that summer heat, you know, if the garden's being watered, just get a get a torch and just crouch down and have a look yeah. at what's crawling over your garden. You you see all these different beetles that you didn't even know were there, and it also helps spot uh, pests, insects before you realise they're a problem as well. When you start <laughs> seeing all the slugs coming out at night, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point because. We garden during the day and we just assume that when we go to bed, everything else gets to bed, but that's mm. not necessarily true. And that's why we need biodiversity around because there are a series of checks and balances in nature that we aren't always taking advantage of as humans. Yeah, exactly. And it's, yeah. So I, you often see if someone's setting up like a garden bed or a veggie patch, they like these nice, neat rows and they like to have it cordoned off from the rest of the garden. But technically, that's actually probably the worst thing you could do for pests. That's a, So when you plant a veggie patch and you plant these big square sections, you know, it's it's great for you because you can pick exact. you know exactly where your cabbage is, you know exactly where your lettuce are. The problem is, so do the pest insects. There's like this nice big target in your garden um, that they go, I like this type of lettuce. Oh, look, there's a great big section of them. Yeah. And nothing else. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so I am going there. So if you were to, and this, I know this would be a real pain for most gardeners, but if you actually wanted the best garden for pest control, or sorry, chemical-free pest control, is you would actually, you would not plant the two same plants together. You would actually scatter every vegetable across your garden because this is, to use the technical term, this is resource concentration theory, right. which is basically the more of a resource you have, so the re- more of one type of plant, the more enticing it is to an insect. And the first mm-hmm. insect to find it's almost always going to be a pest insect like aphids or caterpillars. So when you mix plants up in a just a medley, like, you know, sort of think of it like a forest, so everything is just scattered everywhere, it's it becomes... It uh, becomes harder for insects to find things because most insects rely on a sense of scent to be able to find their host plant. And if it's mixed up with all these other scents, so you know mm. you, you're trying to smell a, a a lettuce or something, and but there's this big, great big tomato plant next to it, suddenly your scent is being interrupted by this other scent. So it just makes it that much harder to navigate to the right plant. Wow! Look. I wanted to just touch on a couple of things because I realized we didn't touch on a couple of things to do with the design specs part of our conversation. Yeah, yeah, sure. But can you tell me a little bit more about the design specs? Yeah, so the the most important thing when you're planning a shelter belt is firstly to determine what your ability and what your resources are. So there's no point having grand ambitions if you know you're not going to be able to manage it or you're not going to have, for example, the irrigation ability to get the plants established. So I have met a landowner. They had someone plant the trees for them and they reassured them that at the start of summer that, no, it'll be fine. These trees are absolutely fine. Don't worry about it. And he had, I think, about a 95% death rate of his trees. (laughs) So he would have been better off just planting 10 trees and having a water watering can and that would have been manageable for him and sure he wouldn't have got as many trees but he would have had 10 established trees 
So that's the first thing to take into account. <laughs> the second is to consider consider what direction the shelter belt is running. So if if you have strong northerly winds but really mild southerly winds, then you probably want to run the tree run along the north. Cons- conversely, if you have really strong really if you have problems with like really strong sun in summer in the afternoon, well plant it in the direction that it'll shade shade an area for your livestock to shelter in prevent them getting too hot. And then you can also probably one of the best shapes you can have for a shelter belt is no shape at all. Just zigzag it around into mm. wherever you can fit it. Because if you have a weaving undulating shelter belt, well, it'll actually capture every wind direction because if it's the because if it's running perpendicular, that's great. If it's running along it, well, you've still got these little pockets of shelter. And yeah, so you, whichever little critter is sheltering, sheltering in these low wind pockets, it's, it's still available to them. Hmm. Yeah, so, and as I said, as I alluded to earlier, uh, the, the, best, the best shelter you get from a shelter belt is two and a half times the height of the shelter belt. So if you want to... So if you if you there's something specific that you wanted to protect, you'd plant a tree that'll grow to the height of that distance away. So say you had a you know a, a shed or something that you want protected from strong winds, yeah, plant your trees. You plant your trees two and a half times their maximum height away from that shed. Right. So you're still going to have pockets, obviously, in the middle of it that are going to get high winds, but we're getting some really big benefits, especially close to trees, and also that there are knock-on benefits, obviously, on wind erosion and stuff like that. Like worst-case scenario, we get a high wind. It's going to pick up a little bit of that soil, but it's going to hit the shelter belt and it's going to drop right there. It's not going to carry on out to Melbourne. Yeah, that's right. So what actually happens when wind approaches a shelter belt? It actually starts slowing down as it reaches the shelter belt. Because it's getting compacted against the wind that's already reached there before it. Yes, exactly. So it start it starts building up pressure, and that slows it down. So sort of a lot of particles will start dropping out then, and then it'll either slow slowly throw, flow through the shelter belt, or it'll go over the top. But then when it goes over the top, it reaches that slow moving air that went through it, and so it doesn't actually reach the ground again. It actually glides over the top, providing this sort of pocket of protection. But the the good thing about trees in a landscape and this is this is a bit where it's great to work with your neighbors this either urban or rural areas is the more trees you can get in an area this that benefit of wind reduction doesn't just occur just after the shelter belt it actually takes a while for that wind to build up speed again and Mm, if before it builds up speeds again it hits another tree Mm. the whole process keeps going so if you have if you have a whole community that has mixture of farm trees scattered trees and shelter belts it may not matter which direction the wind's coming because the wind just can't build up speed across that landscape so uh, it's like if you stand in the middle of a forest on a windy day it's you barely feel the wind because from every direction it's it's uh it doesn't suddenly just pick up through the trees <laughs> mm. so if you see your neighbor planting trees maybe bring them some cupcakes or a or some sort of a present just to say thank you for planting that tree because that's going to have knock-on effects for you if you're a farmer. Yeah, absolutely. And conversely, maybe plant on your your <laughs> property in a way that benefits them. And and or, and yeah, maybe actually the best thing to do is actually get together and decide actually across the landscape which are our key wind directions and how can we plant in a way that complements each property. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. And this actually, and this, you know, this also happens in an urban setting as well. I'm, I'm sure everyone's been in a circumstance where, you know, a neighbor's chopping down a tree and you're like, oh, no, I love that tree. It gives me beautiful mm-hmm. dappled light in yes. summer. And, and yeah, it's the same scenario. You, you trees provide that benefit across properties. So it's, it's always good to plant with a, in mind to not just your property, but the surrounds as well. Absolutely. We're all in this together, Ian. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's true, though. You know, it sounds corny, but it is true. We're all in this together. Yeah, and, you know, I I don't want the hot summer sun hitting my brick wall. Plant a damn tree there, my neighbour. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Billy from Crimes Against Horticulture came on the show recently. So that's a Facebook group where he basically posts crimes against horticulture. And one of them recently was really funny. It was just a giant tree that had 
It was right on the borderline, but it was technically the trunk was on the right-hand property. <laughs> and the left-hand property obviously hated this tree because they've just shaved off everything right up to that borderline the whole way up this <laughs> this poor tree. <laughs> it just says a lot because that's been my experience at times as a maintenance guider in a in a in a residential setting. You know, you've got one neighbor just hates a tree and they want to get rid of it. And yeah, when the property line's there, it's actually within their rights to do so. Yeah, I I remember my parents' property. They had this beautiful lemon tree, and it used to produce so many lemons. And conversely, my neighbor, their neighbors loved big cypress trees, so they planted these big pencil pines, <laughs> which slowly encroached over the fence, and they just created this perfect umbrella over the lemon tree. That this lemon tree got more and more stunted, and the lemons got smaller yeah. and smaller because uh, yeah, they just never got enough water. But surprisingly, it's still there, still produces lemons. But uh, oh, okay, just, in the low light, good on them. Yeah, right. just. Just only really on one side, though. <laughs> yeah, right. There's such a thing as right plant, right place. You know, when we say go out and plant trees, we're hoping that you're going to put a little bit of thought into it. Yeah, actually, in an agricultural setting or even just a revegetation setting, one of the things I actually suggest to a lot of landowners is the trees that you're going to have there are going to be living in a different condition than what they are going to establish in. So if you think a wide open space, that's going to get hit by a lot of sun, a lot of wind, it's going to dry out from hot summer winds. But once it's established, you're going to have this nice microclimate, which it's the winds are going to prevent the wind. So you're going to get high humidity, which means the next trees that grow there are going to have a lot easier time. So what I actually suggest is when you're establishing an area that's like when you're starting from scratch is just plant a whole range of species in a small test patch, you know, maybe just two or three of each tree type and just see what grows and survives in that condition. Because yeah, maybe you want a whole range of wattles and eucalypts, but then when you plant on that slope or on that farm, maybe it's only the she-oaks that grow. It's like, well, okay, that's not a loss. Just start by planting all these she-oaks and creating those conditions. And then once those trees establish and the area is a bit establish well just downwind from them start planting the trees that you actually wanted and suddenly you know you've actually got this these nicer conditions i mean sadly that's also how i run my veggie patch i just throw everything in and see what survives and i'm like okay i guess i'm having crests now uh, uh, a master <laughs> yes yeah. this, this is how this is how the best like well not the best actually no this is how i sort of like to approach things as well in a way like i've got I haven't just thrown down whatever, like I have actually chosen seeds that I want to experiment with, but I don't hold high stock on everything. I'm happy to take a loss. Like it's a fun thing for me. Mm. It's not like I'm trying to get a, a a high yield out. So that's why I think after experimenting the, for the first year, just with a whole lot of different stuff, I'm going to know exactly what to plant next year. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we've we've all got that one plant like every you know, every year we're just going to the neighbours. It's like, do you need some silver beet? I've got seven tonnes of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think for me it's going to be the rocket. Oh, the one ro- particular one particular rocket. I can't remember what it's called, but had three different types, two of them failures, and one of them was just awesome. It was a really big-leafed one. Uh, I, no, I'm rocket cursed. I, I can't do Are you? <laughs> no, my rocket always goes straight to bolting. I just... <laughs> Oh, well, oh, it's still early days, so. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe you'll get there. Maybe you'll have the, yeah. the bolting with me. <laughs> so I guess we've, we've really touched on everything now. So there's one question that I like to ask all of my guests, and it's very open-ended. What else would you like the listeners to know about? Plant a diversity and don't be afraid to, to let trees die and to remove trees after they've been planted. So I mean, I mean that's that, that's a good angle for a horticultural podcast, isn't it? Remove <laughs> no, trees. No, you're not but, the first um, one to say it, mate. Oh, excellent, excellent. <laughs> but I see this a lot. Like people, they I've seen these revegetation sites, mm. or people plant all these plants, and they're just like, I, I can't remove them because I, I put it in. I put it in there, but they're really struggling because they're just all competing, and then you get like dry conditions, and they're all just, you know, they're they're fighting for moisture. You know, it's okay to say. Actually, I've created the conditions I want. I'm going to remove some trees, and now I'm going to create a more diverse, mm-hmm. a diverse landscape. You know, I've I've got these tough, resilient trees. Now I'm going to add the sensitive ones, and I'm going to make some room for doing that. And yeah, and plant plant to your ability. Like there's 
there's no shame in doing small amounts at a time. You don't have to do these massive projects. You can just do a little bit at a time. It's, In fact, it's probably the best way to do it. Yeah. Rather than getting overwhelmed, as we've already said. And that's how nature yeah. works too, you know. It colonizes patches and then once the conditions are changed, that's when new plants can come in. I mean, that's what weeds literally are. They're colonizing plants. They're trying to make conditions available for the next stage. Yeah, I mean, weeds are fantastic at colonizing disturbed soil. And if everyone just stopped any sort of soil one day, just decided to stop any sort of soil disturbance, <laughs> Probably, you know, a massive percentage of weeds would just pretty much be eradicated. Well, maybe not eradicated, but you would they'd almost you'd 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 stop seeing them. They'd just be become quite rare. Just yeah, because that's almost most weeds. That's what they are. They're just colonizing species. And you know, something like clover, it doesn't have to be a weed. Like in my day job, because of where I'm working, clover's a big weed. But the way I look at it is that clover shouldn't be a big weed because there are a range of benefits that something like that actually provides. No, graziers love clover. They can't get enough clover. <laughs> and for a number of reasons, for one, the nitrogen fixing, obviously. Yeah, yeah. They're, they, they, they improve the soil quality, the soil nutrition, and uh, I believe they're quite nutritious for animals as yeah, well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, protein, high in protein because they're a legume. Hmm. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Ian. No, no problem at all. Happy to have a chat with uh, all the uh, plant people out there. Yeah. We are a weird bunch, but we are a passionate bunch. And um, yes, <laughs> passion is what makes the world go round. <laughs> Absolutely. We can all help biodiversity by increasing the number of good plants we have in our backyards. Plants can help provide wildlife corridors for animals, including birds, and they can also help reduce wind. But if you have a decent plot of land you're farming on, you have the unique opportunity to incorporate one or more shelter belts to provide ecological services and increase your yield while you're at it. If you've listened to Plants Grow Here for a while, you've probably heard the phrase right plant, right place by now. Make sure you seek expert advice when planting your shelter belt so that you can get the most out of it. Listen to our back catalogue for more plant-related wisdom from experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Cheers. Cheers.